Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This week on Forward, former CIA operative and Texas congressman, and author of the new book, American Reboot, Will Hurd, this week on Forward. It is my pleasure to welcome to the Forward podcast, former CIA officer and U.S. representative uh, for Texas 23, I want to say. Was that the district? That's correct. That's correct. And author of the great new book, American Reboot, An Idealist Guide to Getting Big Things Done, Will Hurd. Welcome to the podcast, Will. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. It's a pleasure. No problem. So uh, your background is fascinating. You seem like a fictional character. So, <laughs> so what do I mean by that? I mean, now I, I feel like uh, I, I know a great deal about your life having read your book. Um, I confess that I was most drawn to uh, your stories of being a CIA operative because like a lot of people, I dreamt about being a spy or an American James Bond when I was a kid, but you actually went out and did it. <laughs> Best job on the planet. Best job on the planet. Now, so you uh, graduated from college uh, in Texas and then immediately went to the CIA. Is that right? That's correct. You know, my, my degree was in computer science and I thought I was going to uh, I thought I thought I was going to go work for IBM and code. You know, I had an internship there and, you know, worked with one of their top programmers. And I had never really been outside of Texas. Um, you know, I had I had gone to Langston, Oklahoma, um, and I'd been to Indiana as a kid. But uh, I decided once one after my freshman year in college to take a two journalism classes in Mexico City. And fell in love being in another culture. I thought it was cool uh, seeing things I only read about in books, right? And I was just blown away and decided to add international studies as a minor. And the first class I took in international studies, this former CIA badass, right? Um, it's, sorry, tough guy, tough guy. I, I don't badass know. Badass is fine. Badass is okay. Um, and, and he told these amazing stories about being an old school cold warrior and being in Moscow and being in Mexico, going toe to toe with Russian intelligence officers. And I was just like, I want to do that. And that began my interest. And when I graduated, I went into the CIA and started when I was 22. 
So how the hell does someone join the CIA? I say this, everybody thinks I'm joking. It's an application and interview process, right? Like you, you really do. Um, you know, um, at Texas A&M, where, where I went to undergrad was uh, uh, because of Jim Olson. This was the guy that that told me these amazing stories. It's kind of a pipeline there there to the agency. But you do you do a number of interviews, you do a number of tests. Um, there's a there's a poly, a psyche val, you know, all these kinds of things. And um, and I got in and it was it was awesome. It, and, and because they don't take many people straight out of under, undergrad. And so I, I basically was in, in headquarters in Langley for two years before I did training. And my my career literally started the day of the USS Cole bombing in, um, you know, the, the, the U.S. Navy destroyer that was attacked by Al-Qaeda in the Gulf of Aden off of the coast of Yemen back in October of 2001. And that was the day I drove my car from, from San Antonio to Washington, D.C. And then my career ended in Afghanistan um, dealing with Al-Qaeda there. Well, it's quite a set of bookends. So why do you think they decided to hire you out of undergrad, which is somewhat unusual. Well, look, I, I, one, it was um, they're looking for people that have good grades. I had really good grades, and really good. Let's let's be honest, I had good grades. I, I met their I met their minimum uh, of what what was required, and then I had a number of of leadership um, experiences when I was at was at U- university, and so I was our student body president. You know, forty three thousand students. I would say it's like a it's like being the mayor of a of a small town. And um, I, you know, and led the university through a a pretty horrific um, 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 accident. We had 12 kids killed when our bonfire collapsed. This was a tradition and that had been going on for almost 100 years. And about 24 of the kids were were injured. Then I spoke. I I had enough Spanish to get by and and operate. And um, and so and I had experience overseas. Right. So I, I had that experience. Of of working of of studying abroad in Mexico, but I also worked in a factory in the Philippines that manufactured integrated circuits, and it, it's just like it sounds. I was working in this big old factory, um, and and so you know demonstrated ability to operate and be successful in overseas environments. So all those things together, um, you know. Yeah, it's in. a pretty com- compelling application. So um, so you started in headquarters in. Uh, Langley, Virginia. So was that meant you moved to DC from Texas as a 22 year old, and then eventually you wound up in the famous farm, which is the the training program. Um, so you say that which is, which is now when, when I, I I wish this was a joke, but it's now on Google Maps, right? You know, you can so, find the farm now. It's yeah, fine. exactly, exactly. Um, no, I'm sorry, so, I interrupted. Yeah, no, no. So what was the customary background of people that? sign up for the CIA if they didn't join out of college? What do they spend those two years doing or three years or five years or whatever? So so usually it's people that have had, you know, uh, three to five years experience in some other job. A lot of people are, are have law degrees that go into that go into the agency, um, you know, business people, or also we get a lot of folks that have come out of the military that have had a long, um, you know, at least a, a decade in the military, that was that was kind of uh, some of the profile um, during my time when I went in in the in the early two thousands. Okay, so you go to the farm, they whip you into shape, they teach you how to extract intelligence and develop assets, 
and all of this uh, fun stuff that we all read about and watch movies about. Uh, and then what was your first assignment? My, my first assignment was in India and I, and I spent two years there. I was based in, in New Delhi and um, it was it was a great gig. Uh, India is 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 a is a wild place. I, I was all over the country, um, and then and then after that, two years in in Pakistan, primarily in Islamabad, and it was it was fascinating. Uh, the issues in India and Pakistan, the same issues you do you work on the same issues, but it's literally the exact opposite, right? Um, and then I did two years in New York City, where I did a lot of interagency work. Uh, worked a, a lot with. Um, folks on on counterproliferation related items with uh, NYPD and such, and then a year and a half in Afghanistan where I manage our undercover operations there. Um, so you're like a six foot two black dude. Um, <laughs> uh, for whatever reason, I'm imagining you being in India, you'd be very conspicuous. <laughs> so, so, so here's what's funny, right? When I grow a beard, when I grow a beard, you know, I could shape it in a way where it's a little bit more pointed. Some people may think I'm Egyptian, right? When I was in Pakistan, I, I had learned Urdu and, and, I, and it was survival Urdu, right? So I, I, was, I was functionally illiterate Urdu speaker, right? I could speak it, I couldn't read it. Um, but I grew a long beard and I wore like a shawar kameez and you know people thought I was just like the biggest Pakistani they'd ever seen, right? Um, and and my, my Urdu was good enough. I got the locals discount in the bazaar. Right. Wow. That's impressive um, stuff, man. So you're like the Vin Diesel of operatives, yeah. like ambiguous ethnic background. Sure. But 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 here's the other thing I tell you, like when I speak in schools, I always talk about, you know, I always talk to young to young women to say you always hear about James Bond. But Julia Bond was way cooler. Like the, the officers that worked for me, my best officers were always women. And and, you know, look, I, I had a I had an officer, her her call sign. Um, stood for it, it translated into boogeyman in in a, in a certain dialect, and she was five foot tall, blonde hair, and she got the bomb the size of the Oklahoma City bombing uh, off the streets. And so, so you know, you, the way you look and your ability to fit in is only one part of only one tool in your toolkit uh, when you're using tradecraft to collect intelligence on threats to our homeland. And so, uh, so yeah, so I blended in in some places, some places I didn't. Um, but, but that's just only, you know, that, that's only one piece of the, of the puzzle. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free plus you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? 
This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Well, your, your book opens up with a very jarring and honest story about you uh, in a something of an automotive mishap where I think you ran over the heel of a poor woman in India uh, and then everyone got really mad at you and then you managed to calm the situation down because they were kind of surprised you were engaging, which is something of a metaphor for the book, uh, book overall. Um, and you say that one of the first lessons they teach you at, at the farm is to get off the X. <laughs> what first what does that mean and second what is the metaphor you're trying to say for the entire country like what is the x sure. that we're on right now sure so 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 the second lesson you learn at the farm is get off the x the first lesson is actually lock your car doors right it's it's that it's that it's that simple um and get off the x the x is the place where something's going down and that's the last place you want to be where something's going down right and and for me I, I feel like and I, I open the book with this with this story um, as, as a metaphor for where we are in the country because it may not seem illogical that you know the the infighting that we're seeing in, in America has any, any connection but it does because we're at a point in time where we have to do something different the the hyperpartisanship that is that is eroding our ability to have any kind of serious, a public discord to have to get any big thing done, we got to get away from it. We got to get off the X. So I go back to those things I learned when I was 22 years old, 23 years old. Uh, and that's why I started the book off with, with get off the X. Um, because we are at a point where this political polarization is, is eroding trust in every one of our institutions. And, and, and that's a problem. And if we get away from that, and we show some compassion. Uh, we 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 might be able to see uh, the the body politic react the way um, they reacted when I was in this alley, uh, almost getting dragged out of my car. Yeah, it was a very honest story because who the heck wants to admit that they ran over some poor woman's heel? I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> it's like way to way to establish trust with the reader because I was like, oh man, I don't know if I'd be. Be admitting that I, you know, I mean, it's fine. Obviously, I mean, you know, you had a mission. It was a crowded uh, uh, alleyway. Um, so, a number of years later, you're in Afghanistan and you're giving an intelligence briefing to members of Congress. And then one of them asks you, "Hey, what's the difference between Sunni and Shia?" And then you think he's kidding, and then he's serious, and you're like, "Oh no, <laughs> this is uh, this is not where we need our, our leadership to be." And you describe this as one of the things that eventually led you to run for Congress uh, a number of years later. Uh, can you describe that experience? Sure, of course. And look, what I my time in the agency, my job was to recruit spies and steal secrets, right? And I was able to do it in cool places, um, did it with some amazing colleagues. It was awesome working on the most important national security issues of the day. But in addition to doing that, I often had to brief members of Congress that had come out to our to to the embassies and and wanted to get a briefing on what was going on in that country, and so I probably briefed two hundred members 
R's, D's, men, women for all 50 states, right? And, and to be frank, I was pretty shocked at the caliber of our elected officials, right? These were men and women. Look, I, I don't expect everybody to be an expert on everything. But if you're on the financial services committee, you should know the difference between an investment bank, a credit union, and a commercial bank, right? If you're on the intelligence committee and you've been on it for many years, you should know the difference between a Sunni and a Shia. And, and what, what made it even worse when this experience happened, a bomb had just gone off in front of our embassy that night, about four, three, four o'clock in the morning. And my unit was responsible for trying to figure out what happened. And so we conducted a couple of dozen operations in a very short period of time. And we had a, a br that briefing. We had a congressional briefing that night. And so I go in and, you know, we're supposed to be in business casual, right? I'm kind of in tactical gear. When I was, when I was in Afghanistan, my hair was long. And I said earlier, I had a beard. And, and um, I walk in. The first thing I hear is a member of Congress asking, is the CIA going to cut this briefing short so we can get to the bazaar to buy rugs? Right. So I'm pissed. I'm pissed before the before the briefing even started. We go in and, 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 and he asked, like we, he, the, the question was, was on why was Iran not. And this is 2007, 2008, by the way. Why was Iran supporting not supporting groups in Afghanistan the way they were supporting some groups in Iraq? Now, it's a pretty mediocre question. And I started explaining the Sunni Shia divide. And that's when this guy raises his hand. He goes, well, what's the difference between a Sunni and a Shia? And I'm getting ready to make a, I, I thought he was going to make an inappropriate joke. And my response was, I don't know, Congressman, what's the difference? Because I'm thinking I'm getting ready to go up and I'm bump, bump, right? You know, and, and his face, his face turns bright red. Didn't know that difference, right? And, and to me, this is someone that's making decisions on sending our boys and girls to places like, at the time, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan. These are people that are making decisions on how to spend billions of our hard-earned dollars, taxpayer dollars, and to not know something that basic that undergirded um, the global war on terrorism, to me, is unacceptable. It's okay for my brother not to know this because he sells cable here in San Antonio, but it's not okay for someone like that. And for me, that was just another example of things I saw from our elected leaders that were doing the exact opposite of what my friends and I were trying to do and putting ourselves in harm's way in order to protect our country. And so uh, it's one of, the, one of the things that made me, made me want to run. So doing the math, it seems like you'd be deciding to run in your early 30s. Uh, that seems very difficult to gear up for a congressional run. Uh, and I'm not sure if there were resources available as a former CIA officer. Uh, was, was this like something that um, you had some help doing or how the heck do you get started? Look, uh, th there was not a pipeline for former CIA officers. And, and it was hard to basically what's called roll my cover back to say that I was in the CIA. Uh, it would have been it would have been awkward to uh, go around kissing oh, wait, babies. Wait, 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 before you go into this direction, how does one leave the CIA? Is it like a gang where you're like not allowed to leave? <laughs> you got to fight. You got to fight your way out. No, no. Um, um, no look, look the, the, the agency was super supportive of my departure because they knew and I was leaving not because I had an axe to grind, but because I thought I could help the intelligence community in a different way. And so all the things necessary um, to leave and to be able to talk about, look, in, in my entire nine and a half years, 
The only time I ever said those three letters, the CIA, was when I recruited somebody because you want to make it very clear who they're working for. Other than that, I've never seen said those three la- letters. And then when you're running for Congress, I said CIA like a hundred times a day. It was super, sure, man. It was But here was my logic that went into running. Because I had run for student body president at A&M, and I, I think I got like, I got close to, I got over 12,000, 13,000 votes uh, for, to be student, to be student party president at A&M. What I knew I needed to win a primary. At the time, it was close to like 17, 18, 19,000 votes. So I'm thinking, and, and then when I ran for student body president, I could only spend like $300, right? Um, and so, so I was like, okay, we're almost there. And then when I went and looked, um, and, and so, so I did have the idea for me running for Congress literally started at a Tex-Mex restaurant in, in Washington, D.C. with a good friend of mine and his best friend who had run campaigns before. So I had a guy who was part of what's called the NRCC, uh, the National Republican Congressional Committee. They're the ones that are trying to get more Republicans, and the Democrats have one too, the DCCC. And so he had worked at the NRCC. It was like, hey, Will, um, we think you'd be, I, I think it'd be great. He knew me in college. And so it started with understanding how many votes do I need to win? Where do I find those votes? Um, how do I build a, 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 an, an organization that um, is going to, that, I, that I'm, I need in order to get those votes? And so it, it really did get down to understanding the data and how many votes I need in each county. And what I needed to do, I didn't need to do something that had never been done. And at the time, the, the 23rd now, or, or when I ran was, was, when I won was 29 counties. At the time, I think it was only 23 and I knew the most important was San Antonio, Bear County, where I live, that I was going to lose because I didn't have, I hadn't been there for a long time. But what I had to do in all those other counties was come close to doing the best performance that had ever happened. I didn't have to do the best performance. I didn't have to out, you know, out, out kick, you know, coverage. I just had to get near what had already been done in many of those, but I had to do it all at the same time. And, and that was, that was our, our strategy. And so, um, look, I was a government employee. I wasn't independently wealthy. My parents don't have money. And so I sat and called friends and family and asked them for money uh, to build an organization that I can go out and talk to folks. And then I put a lot of miles on my car, a lot of miles, and showed up to places. And that's what people appreciated. And I kept showing up. And, and folks liked um, my background, they thought it was interesting, and sure, um, sure. and and I won that I won I won that first round. I lost a runoff because I made a I made a strategic and a tactical mistake, um, but but I came out on top when nobody thought I was going to be able to make it in a primary. I'm at a time when you know this was when the Tea Party was big and Tea Party had endorsed somebody else, the establishment Republicans endorsed somebody else, but I was able I was able to get um, uh, the poll position out of five and uh, lost the runoff, but then came back a couple of years and won. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. 
I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, so that first run and then losing... Um, must have been difficult. It sucks, uh, people, man. Yeah, yeah. It, because it was clear that you put a lot of miles on that car and you 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 worked your heart out. Um, I've lost a campaign or two. <laughs> 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 so afterwards, you know, like people don't realize just how uh, exhausting and depleting it is. Not just like in a physical level, but on this emotional level. Look, Andrew, you, you know this. The thing that's the hardest, and I think this is where you and I probably probably are the same. We got people that had never been involved in the political process, engaged and excited, right? Like that was my secret. There were these were people that were not. Look, I shouldn't tell this story. My brother gets mad when I tell this story. But my brother, my brother is four years older than me. And he was like my number one super volunteer, right? He was doing everything. Like he was, you know, you know all the crazy things you have doing the campaign. And like six months in, my brother turns me one day, he goes, so what's a primary again? <laughs> and, and I'm like, don't worry, big guy, just keep doing what you're doing, okay? You, you, don't, you don't need that bit, right? Um, and, and so it was people like my brother, people like there, you know, so many families that had never been involved in politics that were excited, right? And so when we won, so look, the, the first round, everybody was like, okay, you're probably, you're probably not going to win this. You know, nobody ever wins their first time. And when we won and the papers and everybody's right, like, man, he's the next best thing. And then to lose, and look, the other side, my opponent in the primary, we knew his staffers literally had put their um, resumes out because they thought they were going to lose and they were looking for other jobs, right? And to lose that and the gut punch it was for all those people that had done something they had never done before, man, I felt like I let them down. And, and that, that to me was the part that was the hardest, right? And, but here was fascinating. They all stayed kind of, they all started paying attention to politics and, and started voting more and, 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 and asking better questions. And so, so at least, you know, inspiring that spark in people. And then when we got smarter and we came back, um, we were able to pull it off. So 2014, you are now a, a member of Congress. Uh, so you're working with a, a, a lot of people. Um, I know you drove to 
DC at least once with our mutual friend Beto O'Rourke. Uh, so you'd been in DC before as a CIA operative. Uh, what was it like arriving as a member of Congress? Were you like, okay, it's time to get shit done? Like, you know, like, what, <laughs> is it like the giant um, high school for adults that uh, I think a lot of people imagine? Well, well, look, so a cu- couple of things. A little bit, yes, it is. Um, I remember, so two weeks after you win, you get to, you're in DC, and this is part of it's an orientation. And you're getting your office and stuff like this. And I remember, I, and like there's a weird lottery, right? I'm like, I'm like, just give me an office, right? Like, I don't care. Like, give me the office. And then the guy who's going to be my chief of staff is he's like, he's like, Will, um, I need a check. I must say it was like for like $200. I was like, what do you need a check for $200 for? He goes, for paint for the walls. I was like, I got I to gotta pay for the paint in the, in, the, in the walls of my office? I'm like, this is weird, right? And, and so, so you get up there. I had never been involved in Congress. I had never interned up there. My chief of staff was one of my closest friends who had spent time up there. And you're having to hire you know, up to 28 people in a, in a short period of time. Because of my district was so big, I had four offices across the district. I would fly in and out of three different airports. And so, so getting that up, getting, that, getting up and running flat-footed. And because it went from, from a Democrat to a Republican, um, there wasn't much sharing of information and, and, and proper handoff, right? And so, so I was learning a lot of this stuff um, on my own. And, and for me, look, I, I knew because of how, how you know, I, I won, I forget, I think that first election, I won by a couple thousand votes, that my re-election already started and people are going to be coming at me. And so the value proposition that I made to the voters was, listen, I, I heard from everybody. They, they got sick and tired because they never saw their member. They felt like they didn't have a connection. And my value proposition was, you're going to see me. And before I went to take the oath of office first, I hit all 29 counties and, and to, you know, and did town halls to kind of, you know, get my marching orders from my bosses. You know, people always, people always say, oh, your boss. I'm like, my boss is not the speaker of the house. It's not the president. It's not the majority leader or the minority leader. My bosses are those 800,000 people I represent. Right. And, and so, so I knew that, that my reelection was going to be based off of, did I do all the things that I said I was going to do? And, and so, so I wanted to hit the ground running fast. The guy I beat had never gotten a piece of, like gotten one piece of legislation signed the law. So I was trying to think about, you know, how do I do legislation? How do I make sure constituents are getting answered? So it's a, it's a whirlwind. It's a whirlwind um, for a lot of members, especially ones that come from com- competitive districts when you first get up there. So you're, I think anyone watching and listening to this is now registered that you're uh, what's called a reasonable or sane Republican. <laughs> take it. I'll take uh, it, Andrew. Yeah. Um, you, you're, you're also very bipartisan. You co-sponsored legislation with Beto uh, after it sounds like this 18 hour road trip that you mm-hmm. guys streamed. Um, so everyone got to watch the, the two of you choose tunes and the rest of it. Um, you co-sponsored reasonable immigration legislation with Pete Aguilar. Uh, and th- this was one of the most harrowing stories in your book, where 
apparently you were only three votes away from getting reasonable immigration reform across the table. Uh, and then uh, you had like this clutch of principled Republicans like yourself. And then Republican leadership came in and said, hey, how about you walk away from that and we'll uh, do this other thing for you that doesn't really matter. And then enough members were like, OK, I'll, I'll do that. Um, so you want to share that story because I couldn't believe when I was reading it in your book, I was like, oh, my gosh, we actually had a chance to pass that. Yeah, look, it, it's it's probably still one of the things I'm still like most pissed off about. And because, look, it, to me, immigrant immigration is important to the success of our country, right? Let, let's start there, right? Th there's a reason the longest chapter in my book is on immigration and border security and, for, and, and because, because we have benefited from the brain gain of every other country um, for the last 75 years. And, and if we were streamlining legal immigration, we would relieve some of the pressure that we're seeing right now um, on the border. Uh, we would be addressing some of the, the employee shortage uh, that, that we're seeing in so many industries. Uh, actually, it widens the tax base so you have more people paying in. I, I, look, I, I talk about a new Cold War with China, that the Chinese government, um, that uh, they've been stealing our technology and our intellectual property. Uh, let's steal their engineers, right? Like, so, so, so to me, it's so important. And so we got close in to, to do what was called a discharge petition. Long-winded way, it's a super arcane rule that jams the leadership of the House to bring a, a bill to the floor. We had a bill called the USA Act, and this is what Pete and I had been working on for months. It addressed DACA or, or the DREAMers, it addressed border security. It addressed some of the root causes, um, like the, the economic problems in the Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. And it addressed the, um, uh, the, the, the immigration judicial system. And so every Democrat signed on to this bill, or this the discharge. And we needed, I forget the total number of, of Republicans, but we got up to we had two votes. We had two more signatories of this letter. And this had to be done by a specific date because of the way the rules of the House operated. And we knew if this bill came to the floor, it would get over 240 votes, right? You only need 218 to pass. And the same bill, this USA Act, had, had been worked on in the Senate. This was when um, Senator McCain was still alive. It went up for a vote. And it came four votes shy of, of hitting of getting cloture, right? Three votes shy of getting cloture. And that was that we knew the political environment was different, that if it passed the House in a bipartisan way, it would probably put pressure. We knew on which Republicans would potentially vote and get and get this bill. And, and guess what? Um, President Trump would have signed this bill in the law. And so at the end, we almost we had our two names. They were like, "Will we're telling the team that we're working on this. We're gonna get that. We're gonna sign there." And then, and then, and then, Republican leadership came in and offered something that pulled them away. And those of us that you know, the 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 renegades, um, you know, many of the renegades said, "Oh, we're gonna try this other option." And we were so close to making it happen and upset. But but here's what makes me even more upset: that was Republican leadership killed that bill 100. I can say that. That same bill 
would still get 240 votes if it got brought to the floor today, right? And so Democrats loved it at the time. And I'm, not, I'm not trying to be partisan here, Andrew. No, no, like, no, go ahead. Right, like, like they, they, they were all on board and jamming and forcing Republican leadership to do something, right? But when it comes their chance to do it, they're unwilling to do it because they're afraid instead of working with the 20 to 30 Republicans that would make this bipartisan, give them the votes, they're afraid of their far left flank from criticizing this because it may not go too far, right? And that's why, and, and it's so frustrating that immigration, even though if you look at Republican primary voters and Democratic primary voters, they actually pretty much see eye to eye. Most people on a, agree on, like, on a this. reasonable middle ground approach. Yep. For sure. But both sides, p- political leaderships of both sides would rather use this issue as a political bludgeon to hit each other over the head with rather than to solve the problem. It's super frustrating. It's something that we got to address. And it's something that be even even more important, impactful right now, considering the number of crises that we're dealing. Yeah, it, I mean, the, the story was fascinating because it sounded like every Democrat was for this bill. And then you were part of like this group of maybe, you know, a dozen or two dozen uh, Republicans who were kind of sticking your neck out uh, and then uh, trying to get it done. Um, and uh, the fact that it came that close, it was like, oh, well, I hadn't heard about any of this. Um, wh- one of the things I felt reading your book was like, whoa, you know, it's like I-, I got a very different version of that story. So I remember I was running for president and uh, then President Trump uh, ordered the uh, killing of Soleimani, the uh, reigning leader. Uh, and I remember pre- the press just pillorying him for that as if it was like a, a very, very rash action. And in your estimation, it was actually appropriate and uh, followed through on an earlier U.S. commitment. Look, 100 percent it was. And this notion that so if there are not consequences to negative behavior, negative behavior is going to continue. And, and Qasem Soleimani, when he was the head of the Iranian Quds, Iranian IRGC, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Quds Force, this would be like um, the equivalent of Navy SEALs and the CIA being merged together. This, this is ultimately what he ran. And this was an organization that has been labeled as a terrorist organization. Like this is not this is not me uh, using a using hyperbole. This was state on uh, State Department list, UN, all this stuff. And this is an individual who has been responsible for killing thousands of American soldiers, right? And that's just American soldiers, not many many of our allies. And this notion was that we always talk about escalation. And escalation is getting a lot of the conversation right now when we're dealing with Russia. And what is going to escalate? And, and, and if you do this, this is going to cause open conflict. What yeah, happened? That, that's what the criticism was, yeah. Right? And, 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 and guess what? What happened? The, the Iranians, we knew they were going to respond. They gave a tacit, they, uh, they gave a, uh, 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 a very weak response that we were able to defend against so that they can say, ha we responded, uh, you, you terrible people. And, and then guess what? Everybody went on their way. And so it was the right move. You know, one of the things I, I talk about, and, and this is 
This is actually one of the chapters, one of the sections in the book where I talk about when it comes to foreign policy, our foreign policy should be simple. Your friends should love you and your enemies should fear you. And, 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 and when the international order, the international order has, been, has worked and has benefited Americans when America uses our economic and military power to, uh, to, to, to support it. And, and that has led to 70 years of peace and prosperity in Europe. That allowed have us a major trading partner. The global GDP between the U.S. and Europe have 50% of global GDP. That has been beneficial to, 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 to all Americans in our economy. And so we can't be afraid to use this application of force and again, I disagree with Donald Trump on a lot of things, right? But this was one that 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 I agree with him on. Yeah, there was another very affecting story where you were in a helicopter helping Pakistanis who were uh, trapped in the rubble of an earthquake aftermath, uh, and there was a little girl that had lost her parents uh, and was afraid to come in the helicopter, and then you. Uh, personally comforted her and then brought her in the helicopter. Uh, and so when people imagine uh, the perception of Americans in other parts of the world, uh, you know, you've actually been part of saving lives uh, as a positive application of American assets and resources. Look, America has become an exceptional nation, not because of what we have taken, but because of what we have given. And, and I was lucky to see that up close and personal. I was lucky to 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 be take take part in in, the, in many of those kinds of activities, and we we had forgotten, you know, prior to nine eleven, if you were in Pakistan, if you would talk to any any person under the age of forty, their first experience with Western culture would have been at a a um, um, a, uh, a the American Center in one of the major cities in, in Pakistan. And, and American centers are, are separate from the embassies or the consulate, but it's like a big community building, right? So you have a library there, you can listen to rock music, you can look at the latest pictures of, of Life magazine. A, a lot of, of, of Pakistanis, when they apply to universities, they use tools at these American centers, right? Like this, this soft power, right? This this public diplomacy is one of the things that has helped make America what it is today. After 9-11, all of our facilities overseas became bunkers, and they became the most fortified location in those places. Now, there, I, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing that completely, uh, but when you, when you fail to engage with communities, when you show that you're more afraid of a community because you're, you're, because you're afraid of what's going to happen to you, that's where our standing in the rest of the world um, started, started eroding. And, and again, we benefit. Foreign policy is not foreign. And, and I can make an argument that America has been isolationist more than it's not been. Right? George Washington warned us about entangling alliances, right? Well, the world has changed a lot since my man, you know, uh, George Washington was, was president, right? And it's interconnected. He was also very, uh, very fearful of political parties, but continue. But he foresaw what was going to happen, right? You yeah, know? he did. Um, and so, so anyway, so, so I think that is something that, that, that my perspective and opinions on foreign policy have been have been shaped by my time in the CIA, but also working alongside of 
my my the diplomatic corps, um, working alongside of men and women in USAID, meeting all of these great NGOs that are in in tough environments trying to do better. And so so look, we we have we we we've been lucky as a country to to be able to improve the quality of life of our own citizens, but but to also to uplift humanity. And and that when, when America's doing that, we're at our best. So you're a Republican who uh, believes in the threat of climate change, has been trying to do things about it. Um, your family has personally experienced racism. Uh, your uh, family was denied housing sometimes on the basis of, of race. Uh, I think when you were in Congress, you were one of either two or three black members of the House that were Republican. Um, and I, I think a lot of people watching and listening to this were like, wow, you know, like uh, I, I could see myself supporting someone like mm-hmm. Will. Uh, one thing you don't know, actually, is that the reason why my team reached out to you is that I was uh, with some friends uh, in Silicon Valley in the tech world. And then they said, if there's one person who understands this stuff uh, out of Congress, it's Will Hurd. And then I said, oh, really? Like, how do I not know this fellow? Like, oh, let, 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 let us reach out. Um, you were in a competitive district, uh, kind of managing something very, very difficult, which was you were uh, winning races uh, as the country was kind of whipsawing back and forth, uh, served three terms. Why did you decide to abbreviate uh, your, your time uh, in the House? So, so Andrew, I, these positions weren't designed for people to be in them forever, Right. And are, are you like Beto uh, pro term limit? Sounds like you are. <laughs> so, no, it, it's funny. It's funny. Right. So I, I got criticized. I got criticized early on because I said I was against term limits because my argument was, if you don't like who's in there, go vote. When when the average num- in a primary in, in 2018, the last non-presidential election, um, the average number of voters in a contested primary was 54000 people. That's not a lot of people. Right. Yeah. And, and so so it's like, you know, the, the ability to 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 win, go be, go go beat somebody. Right. That was my point. And so when I walked away, those same people that were critical of me were, for not for not supporting terms, like, why are you walking away? I was like, I'm walking away because you don't have to die or, or be defeated to leave these positions um, Two, I think I think this this back and forth, you know, getting experience doing something in, in, for service in your, in your country, and then getting out, coming back in, you know, it makes you smarter, it makes you more well-rounded. Um, had I lost, when I lost in, in, in that 2010 election, my ability to go in, in the private sector and start a, help start a cybersecurity company, that informed me of a lot of things that made me a more effective uh, member of Congress. And so, so, so I, I, I had said when I ran the first time, that these jobs have a have a shelf life six, seven, or eight years, and I said, okay, it was going to be six, and and then the opportunity for me, like, and and this is another thing I think we agree on, um, the technological questions that we're going to have to ask ourselves and deal with over the next couple of years are pretty significant, and and so to be and, and the only way that we're going to be able to deal with these questions, these issues, and then do it within a competition between us. And the Chinese government is if the public and the private sector are working together. And so now being out in private sector and helping, you know, uh, in supporting entrepreneurs and, and artificial intelligence and quantum computing and biotech, 
I've 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 learned a lot already, and and I tell I think I have. You can see you can see that that's that's an actual typewriter, you know. And I show that to kids when I speak to high schools. Nobody knows what it is, and when I open it out of the box, everybody ooh and ahs, right? And I said, look, I used that when I was in eighth grade, and it's it's old and outdated. And then I whip out my cell phone and say, and imagine when this cell phone is going to get old and outdated, which which it's going to happen sooner rather than later. So so that's one of the reasons why I, I decided to pursue other opportunities. Well, you had a much clearer perspective on the competition with China than I, I think I've seen from just about any other political figure. You have multiple chapters. You worked in technology. Uh, you're working in the field now uh, in, in various capacities. So uh, it sounds like you've made uh, an appeal that was, uh, I want to say it, it kind of transcended party. Um, uh, I'm guessing that you're probably somewhat concerned about the direction of the Republican Party uh, over the, this past period. I mean, you did disagree with Trump on a whole lot of things when he was in office. And there are some stories in the book about him calling you and being like, hey, you want to vote like this? And you were like, sorry, Mr. President, can't do that. And then he would... Uh, you know, rant at you for a little while. <laughs> yeah. Harangue. I think harangue would be the right, would be the right word. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, how do you think, I, I see uh, reasonable Republicans of which I believe there are millions as the most important pivot group in the country. And I, I know many, um, and they're very concerned that the Republican party has become the party of Trump mm-hmm. uh, and that they'd like to do something about it, but the mechanics make it difficult um, do you have any thoughts? I'm sure you have friends who resemble the same thing. Sure. No, look, I, I agree with all your 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 your, your points. Um, the problem in our politics is that is that the political electorate is no longer is no longer a line. It's a horseshoe, right? And the the that means the edges are closer to each other than they are the middle. And 80% of Americans care about putting food on the table, a roof over their head, and making sure the people they love are healthy, happy, and safe. And they don't wear a particular jersey, or they, they, may, they may like one color more than the other, but they're willing, they're willing to, 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 to ebb and flow. Um, and so, so b- both sides of the political aisle th- should care. Independents should care. Uh, forward party members should care, right? The, the people that don't vote should, should care because we need to have a real strong competition of ideas. And whether that's between two parties, whether that's between three parties, that's the only way we're going to solve these challenges. And, and what I call the authoritarian wing of the Republican Party. Um, I, you know, look, one of the reasons I'm a Republican is I believe that the concentration of power in the hands of the few is a bad thing. Now, um, my friends on, on the Democratic side of the aisle are trying to concentrate power in the government. My friends in the authoritarian wing of the Republican Party are trying to concentrate that power in one person, right? And, and I, I think those are all bad things. Now, I would say President Trump's um, influence over the electorate has been waning, and it's going to continue to wane um, up, until, up until 2024, and, and that uh, you're seeing down ballot candidates um, win, even though they don't have the support of of, of Donald Trump. And so, I, look, it, it's it's 
he still probably has a solid third of Republican primary electorate. But if you look at the number of people that consider themselves conservative who vote in general elections, but not the primaries, that's a yeah. significant bunch. Right. And, and I think that's where there's there's an opportunity. But, but look, the, the other side and, and Andrew, you know this better than, than some Republicans are going to win in 20. They were take the House back in 2022. That's almost a fait accompli. And likely to pick up the Senate. And part of that is because of, of what I would say is, is incompetence on, on the Democratic Party side to get some things that people care about done and a focus on things that the majority of Americans don't care about. And so if you don't have two parties, you know, uh, uh, what, what's, the, what's the phrase? Iron sharpening iron. When you don't have two parties that are that are really involved in the yeah, why, why was that not the weird. case in American life? Now, <laughs> like iron sharpening iron is not the way anyone would think of these two parties. <laughs> no. no, look for for sure, I, I I I agree with you on that. And 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 so so, but to me, you know, I was I, um, I was I was at South by Southwest a number of years ago. This is the the big tech um, yeah, yeah, movie. Sure. Um, music show. I'm a, I'm in, a veteran. <laughs> yeah, no, you're. I'm trying to explain it for your for your audience, right? Just in case. Um, and and I'm on the panel. I'm on a panel with a bunch of YouTube stars. There was four other people, and combined, those other four had a billion subscribers on their YouTube channels. And I think at the time, I had fifty. Right. And so I'm like, why am I on this panel with, 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 with all these people? And one of them was the digital director for The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. And, and, and this is when the movie Moana was coming out. And, and she's like, look, if Moana fails at the box office, are we going to blame moviegoers for not coming to the movies? Or are we going to say it was a crummy movie? Right. And she's like, she's like, obviously, you're going to say it's a crummy movie. Now, Moana, I thought was a delightful movie. I'm not criticizing Moana anyway. And, but she goes, but politics is the only industry where you blame the person that is that you're trying to sell the good or service to rather than blaming the product, right? And that always stuck in my head and that we, we run, um, a lot of times we run campaigns the way they've always been run. We always think about the past. Oh yeah, man. It's the freaking consultant class. It's one reason why you won is you just had some homegrown people who believed in you and loved you. Absolutely. And did it my way, did it my way. Right. And, and so, so, so look, it, it, it's, 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 um, um, the, the, these political conversation debates are valuable and we got to get to a point where we can, where we can, we can debate, we can disagree without being disagreeable. Um, and, and I think we need to like, look, I, I'm of the opinion that the, uh, that, that, the, that the, the Republican party can be remade. It's going to be a long time. It's going to be hard. It's a difficult task. Um, but but somebody that has been involved in electoral politics, I see. I see like that's something that that is that is. A, a, well, a, hey, a, having having patriots like you trying to remake the Republican Party is uh, an awesome and uh, admirable project. Uh, and uh, a lot of us would love to see people like you succeed. I've got a personal question for you that was burning me up while I was reading this book. Um, so you're in your mid 40s. And as of the writing of the book, you were somehow single. And so I thought to myself, uh, is Will like the most eligible bachelor uh, ever? And this is part of the fictional character thing. It's like, I was a spy. I was a member of Congress. I'm tall, dark, and handsome. And I am single. 
Well, well, Andrew, I'm gonna be in New York in a couple of weeks. If you know anybody, um, look, I, I was I was engaged once. I was engaged once, and um, when you come home and say, "Hey, honey, um, guess what? I actually work in the CIA, and we're moving to Pakistan." Right? That has a chilling that has a chilling effect on 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 a relationship, and so um, and then and then I, I, I you know I've had serious relationships since, but but going back and forth. You know, every being in DC three nights a week, and then being you know probably traveling a couple thousand miles a, a weekend, um, that put that puts a toll um, on 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 a relationship. But yes, I am I am still a bachelor. So well, you um, heard it here, working. people. So yeah, you, you know, <laughs> Will is on Twitter. <laughs> I don't know how I can yeah, he, email, is, email like, Andrew we, Yang and he can connect us. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, well, we, we should resolve this matter. This is of national security. Uh, <laughs> my mom would appreciate now, uh, you. My, my mom cons considers yeah. this a national security issue as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all should truly uh, as a problem solver, it, it it's going to bother me until it's done. Um, so I'm, I'm going to ask you a question that others are going to be thinking. Um, so you're, you're clearly a, a very uh, principled, uh, you call yourself an idealist um, on the, the book cover. Um, you wrote a book, which I enjoyed a great deal uh, and found a, a lot to, um, to think about in it. So the obvious question is, uh, do you imagine another run for office in your future? Look, if, if I'm able to serve my country, in, in a different way, then I'm going to evaluate it, right? Um, and so, so I'm, I'm not ruling anything out. And the the if the opportunity comes, great. And but but to me, you can't think of anything but the next election, right? And the next election is 22. I'm not going to be on the ballot. And so, so if the opportunity comes, like I said, I'll think about it. And 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 can I win a future election the way I've always won mine, right? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be uh, I'm, I'm doing it my way, right? That's why I've always done it. And if I can do it my way, and there's an opportunity, and I feel like um, I, I have something to give to the to the country, then I'll, I'll think about it. Well, let let me say there are a lot of people listening to this that are going to hope that you run again because uh, your party and your country could really, really use you. Will, thank you so much. American reboot, fantastic book, and uh, we look forward to remaining in touch and making sure that your mom's happy and uh, we get you uh, <laughs> we, hey, look, our, our, our next the next podcast will be a, a, us on a double date how about that yeah my wife would enjoy that uh thank you so much will it's been a awesome. blast and a pleasure pleasure was mine brother thank you